Have you ever done something wrong? Have you ever done something wrong? Or sinned? Perhaps you, too, have done something wrong and have sinned like myself, and you wonder, is there life after wrongdoing? Is there life after sin? It's a question that many ask after, of course, they have sinned, and then they come to realize the conviction in the midst of it, the consequences of their sin, regret sets in, guilt, shame, perhaps even anger. Have you ever asked that question, or even felt that your sins were life-ending, where your entire future really seems up in the air? And you know that there will be, in fact, consequences. Just think of adultery. There are consequences that affect your relationship with your spouse. There are consequences that affect your relationship with your children. And certainly there are consequences that affect your relationship with God. And so you wonder if your sin is too big for others to overcome, too big to be forgiven, Really, what we wonder is, is there enough grace to make things right? Are you too far from the reach of grace? I can't help but imagine that that is what God's Old Testament people were thinking after they had sinned a great sin. Is there enough grace to cover the sin? Is, are we out of the reach of grace? And in today's passage, we see, praise God, that no matter how great a sin you have committed, God's grace is even greater. Like the song that we just sung. Of. Sin is great, but God's grace is greater. And we are, in fact, never out of the reach of God's grace, regardless of whatever sin you've committed. That is exactly what God is so kindly teaching his Old Testament people, Israel, and that is exactly what he wants to teach you, friends, today. So join with me in opening up your Bibles to Exodus chapter 33 and 34. If you're using one of the black Bibles in front of you, you can be found on page 73. Page 73 if you're using one of the black church Bibles. Our chapters come immediately right on the heels of Israel's great sin. That's what the Bible calls it, great sin of spiritual adultery against the one and only God. God, in His grace and mercy, He delivers His Old Testament people out of slavery under Egypt. That's chapters 1 to 18, the first half of, of uh, Exodus. And then in the second half, God, in His love, ha He takes Israel to be His bride, so to speak, to be His treasured possession. And He was making for Himself a holy people unto His holy name, where His people would go and display His glory to the watching world. So, to repeat that again, the first half of the book, God delivers Israel through mighty acts, plagues against Egypt. Eventually, he destroys Pharaoh and the, Egyptian, the Egyptians in the Red Sea. And then in the climax of that section in, in uh, Exodus chapter 15, you have this rejoicing of the mighty works of God. Moses and all of Israel rejoicing what God had done in his delivering of them. But then just weeks later, 40 days later, we hear a different kind of rejoicing. Certainly a wrong rejoicing the kind of rejoicing you might overhear as a man lets go of his wife and children to rise up and play with another woman 
That's what's going on with Israel. Even though God had delivered his people, working mighty deeds, even though he was taking uh, these people who were formerly slaves and making them into their own nation to be their own people. Even though God had given Moses, Israel's leader, God's good law, showing them how they are to live. Even though they knew that God was going to dwell with them like a king dwells among his people, the people turned away just weeks later. As God was revealing his will to Moses on Mount Sinai, the people, frankly, get a little impatient with God. And you know what they decide to do? They decide to make an idol to stand in the place of God. If you turn over to 32, verse 1, chapter 32, verse 1, if you're not familiar with the Bible and you know turning here and there, just keep in mind that the first number, that is 32, that would be the chapter number, and then the little numbers, the verse numbers, those would be the verse. So 32.1 is chapter 32, verse 1. Uh, this is what it says. When the people saw that Moses delayed from coming down the mountain, the people gathered themselves together to Aaron, the second in command, and said to him, Up, oh, make us gods who shall go before us. As for this Moses, the man who brought us up out of the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. Aaron, unfortunately, decides to listen to them. And then he leads Israel into spiritual adultery. 32 verse 4, look there. And he received the gold from their hand and fashioned it with a tool, a graving tool, and made a golden calf. And they said, these are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. We've got to remember that God had just told them the Ten Commandments, which begins early on in the commandments. You shall not make for your gods gods of any carved image. You shall not bow down to them or worship them because I alone am your God. But instead they do it anyway. We have to remember that this sin, friend, is insidious. First, because it is abandoning their first true love. And second, because they are so eager to do so. Their sin is just as absurd, friend, as you getting married, moving into your new house, and then putting up pictures of your exes. That's what's going on here. Now, some of us, you know, we might be able to say, oh, you know, I guess, you know, we can kind of enter into their situation. We can kind of see this being natural, being normal. You know, God promised that they would be a kingdom unto themselves. But they're in the desert. They're just more of kind of like a big horde of people. The promise isn't realized. They stand there in the desert. And then not only that, though, but God promised that they would have their own land, a land flowing with milk and honey. But there in the desert, they lack all of the delicacies that they had in Egypt. You know, we can understand how they are seeking, they're waiting the fulfillment of God's promises. No wonder they're getting impatient. But that, of course, is their issue. They long for the promises of God, but they don't really care about God. And though God would have been just to judge them immediately for their sin, he instead calls them to repent of their sin. Moses holds out, he calls everybody, if you are with me, come, stand on my side. Moses, as you saw last week, is a model of what it looks like to have a heart that's dedicated to God in contrast to Israel who sinned. By God's mercy, they were spared from immediate judgment. And I think they are left asking the question, is there life after sin? Or how will the people find God having sinned such a great sin? Friends, there is always life after sin. So if you come this morning, recognizing 
how you yourself, even in the past, have devastated your own life because of your sin. Friends, there is always life after sin. In our passage today, God invites us to see that there is life in Him and in Him alone. So if you want to know how to find God after your own great sin, well, God gives us here the footsteps of the Israelites, the footsteps and the pattern of Moses we see here, so that we too might walk in them, even though this took place, took place thousands of years ago. God here calls us to walk in Israel and in Moses' footsteps to find restoration with this merciful and gracious God. As our passage uh, opens here, now we turn to look at the passage. As our passage opens, we see God's people mourning their sin and the consequences that follow. This is point number one. You want to write down one word to think mourn or mourning, M-O-U-R-N. M-O-U-R-N, mourning their sin and the consequences that follow. Look there in 33 verses 1 to 10. I'll go ahead and read that right now. And once again, have your Bibles open. That will really help you because we, we want to see what the truth is right here. The Lord said to Moses, depart, go up from here. And the people whom you have brought up out of the land of Egypt, to the land of which I swore to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, saying, to your offspring I will give it. I will send an angel before you and I will drive out the Canaanites, the Amorites, the Hittites, and the Perizzites, the Hivites and the Jebusites, go up to the land flowing with milk and honey. But I will not go up among you, lest I consume you on the way, for you are a stiff-necked people. When the people heard this disastrous word, they mourned, and no one put on his ornament. For the Lord had said to Moses, Say to the people of Israel, You are a stiff-necked people. If for a single moment I should go up among you, I would consume you. So now take off your ornaments, that I may know what to do with you. Therefore, the people of Israel stripped themselves of their ornaments from Mount Horeb onward. Let's go ahead and pause right there. You see here that they mourn their sin and the consequences that come from their sin. That is exactly the removal of God's presence from among them. As he says specifically there, I will not go up from among you. See, God had promised once again to be like a king among his people, to dwell with the people. Israel... Uh, was a nomadic people, so naturally, where is God going to dwell with the people? It's going to be in a tent or a tabernacle. That's what it was called, a tabernacle, a glorious tabernacle, fit for a king, made of gold. Very much of it was made of gold with royal colors of red, of blues and purples, and there they were to worship and meet with God. And he promised that he would be among them. This is a king's presence among a people that is his kingdom. And you can imagine there, like, uh, I mean, just imagine like when you were a kid. And you desired the protective presence of a strong father. Imagine you wanted the calming presence of your nurturing mother. And you wanted them, of course, in your fears and in your uncertainty to draw near to you. That's what's going on here. God is promising to be among his people to strengthen them and to be with them celebrating the joys and all of their significant moments leading them into the promised land the israelites knew that when god was with them it meant deliverance it meant leadership it meant strength and confidence in their fears if you are not familiar with the bible and you're learning about uh, this presence and israel for the very first time we need to highlight god's presence among his people god's presence among his people this presence, friends, can be seen all the way in the beginning of the Bible. As God had made Adam and Eve, and he made them to dwell with him. 
to be in a relationship with him. And, and, and then was a very different time than it is now. There, that was a time when there was no sin. So they enjoyed a perfect relationship uh, with their God who made them. The bad thing, friends, is that when they rebelled against God, when they sinned against him, what they did is they threw off the shackles of this supposedly constraining relationship with God and his good and perfect law. And they opted instead to be gods unto themselves. They drew up their own law, so to speak. This was Israel's problem. They sinned against God, being gods unto themselves. And I'm, I, you know, you guys know what this is like. You reject God and his rule, instead opt for your own rule. And so this is Adam and Eve, and friends, this is our, all of us. We have sinned in this way. So when God promises to be with his people yet again, it's not just about security or safety or comfort, though it is in fact all those things. It is God himself bringing his rule and his reign. It's God himself bringing his order, his righteousness and justice to a world that we ourselves disordered. And so there you think, yes, praise God that God is going to dwell among us. My guess is you already know if you yourself have sinned against others or others have sinned against you, you long for the righteous rule of something that cannot be found here. Friends, that's signals of transcendence, as one calls it. Signals of transcendence. Longing for and grasping for a rule that cannot be found here amongst men. Sinful men, friends. That's us grasping, even though we might not even know it, for the very rule and reign of God. And God is promising to bring that to his people. He's promising the power of the kingdom, the law of the kingdom, the goodness of the kingdom. Of course, the king himself. Just like Adam and Eve, the Israelites opted for a false king, a false god. There, 32.1 again. Build us gods who will go before us. You know, anything can be idols. You don't have to bow down to worship physical things for those things to be idols. I mean, have you ever met somebody whose driving passion is money? And they're willing to run over anybody to get it? Uh, the idol there is money. Well, have you ever met somebody whose driving passion is their reputation to live, to please other people, their parents, their bosses, their significant others, their idolatry is people, the idol they worship is people. And so they go around running, running around trying to put out any fires that they themselves cause in order to maintain good, the praise of people, to look good in front of other people. You can take other things, like let's say the idol of things, the stuff. However you might, you know, whatever it is that you might long for, whether it be Maseratis or money or multiple houses, if you have any driving passion that is not God, friends, you have an idol right there in front of you. Idols don't have to be physical. They can be the stuff of the heart here. The Israelites were guilty of this adulterous idolatry. Despite everything that God had given them in the Exodus, despite God working mighty works of deliverance, Despite God's gracious covenant given to sinners, their hearts remained ungrateful to God, impatient with God's kindness. And they chose to live against God's wisdom and opted for their own. This is the rejection of God. Every reason We have every reason here to think that they wanted the fulfillment of the promises of God, but didn't care about God themselves. And so the Bible says that we earn for ourselves God's just judgment, even a judgment in hell. It's, it's, God, it's just 
for God to bring his judgment upon a sinful people. But in relation to the story here, did you notice that God states that he will give them over to their own desires when he says that I'm going to remove my presence from among you? This is God giving them over to their own desires, right? They don't want to go up with God. They refuse to go up with God. They want false gods instead to go up with them. So he simply says, okay, look, you guys, if you guys want this, I'm going to give you to it. I give you to it. I will not go up from among you. You don't want my presence? That I will not give it to you. The great and wonderful thing, though, is that here the people mourn their sin and its consequences. They seem to have a changed heart. Look there again in 34.4. Let me read that to you. When the people heard this disastrous word, they mourned. And no one put on their ornaments. There, the, here God tells them to strip themselves of these ornaments that was associated with the worship of, most likely associated with the worship of this calf, this golden idol. They take them off in recognition that this thing ought not be celebrated. And so they mourn the fact that God will not go up with them. Christian, we all are still tempted to worship idols, as I mentioned earlier. John Calvin is known for saying this, that our hearts are idol factories. The wonderful thing, though, is that God desires to see our idols dashed to pieces by His grace. One of the ways in which He accomplishes that is by letting us see how every single one of them will let us down. All by God's grace. So, friend, if you sit here and you recognize that you are let down by whatever it is that you are chasing, that's God's grace exposing us to how frail our very own idols are. I mean, perhaps you idolize a person that now wants nothing to do with you, no matter how much you reach out to them. Or maybe you idolize a relationship that you cannot keep together. Maybe you seek a career. Only to find out that no matter how hard you try, no matter how much education you go and get, no matter how much money you throw at this, nothing materializes. Or maybe you've chased highs in drugs or sex, and no matter how much you seek these things, you always find yourself empty, seeking more and more and more, and your heart is so hard. And don't ignore these feelings of meaninglessness, of hopelessness, of absolute despair. Friends, the wonderful thing is God has given us emotions. And emotions, some of the emotions that come out of your heart, now certainly not every emotion can be trusted, but oftentimes the emotions that come out of your heart are like, once again, signals of transcendence, grasping after something that this world cannot give you. They're internal signals that remind us that this world is not designed, this world is not what it was designed to be. And that we are not meant to find our satisfaction in all the stuff here in this world. But instead we're meant to find it in our nature. Being in His presence, rejoicing under His rule, knowing our very maker. So friends, do not ignore your despair here. If you seek the highs of alcohol and drugs, don't just take another one. Don't just take another hit. You feel your despair. Because God wants you to turn it into a godly despair. 
a godly mourning where you mourn your sin and its consequences. Feel the hopelessness, realizing that your relationship is not what you thought it would be. Feel the hollowness, realizing that pornography, friends, is not what you thought it would be. Feel the emptiness, the despair, recognizing that your career, after having given yourself decades to it, not giving you what, it, you, what you thought it had promised, friends, that is a good hopelessness to feel right here, right now. Because it reminds you that God is not in those things. Satisfaction is found in a life lived in your very maker. And he implants those signals of transcendence in order that you would find them and worship the God Almighty. Israel here is learning that. After having bowed down to this golden calf and worshipped it, thank God we see some softness here in Israel's heart as God rebukes them. And regardless of how long it took, their mourning seems to be over their sin and its consequences. That's point number one. They mourn their sin and its consequences. So if you want to find life after God, uh, sorry, life, you want to find life in God after sin, what do you do? You mourn your sin and your consequences, the consequences of sin. But you don't just stop there, right? You don't just stop at mourning. Number two, you pursue the presence of God. Number two, pursue the presence of God. And this is what Moses does. Moses here is held out for us as an example that we might walk in his footsteps. Moses implores God, please go with us. Look there in 32, 12 and 16. I'll go ahead and read that. 32, 12 and 16. Sorry, 33, 12 and 16. Moses said to the Lord, See, you say to me, bring up this people, but you have not let me know whom you will send with me. Yet you have said, I know you by name, and you have also found favor in my sight. Now, therefore, if I have found favor in your sight, please show me now your ways, that I may know you in order to find favor in your sight. Consider, too, that this nation is your people. And he said, my presence will go with you, and I will give you rest. And he said to him, if your presence will not go with me, do not bring us up from here. For how shall it be known that I have found favor in your sight, I and your people? Is it not in your going with us so that we are distinct, I and your people, from every other people on the face of the earth? It's interesting, you know, if you look at this in the flow of the conversation, you know, what was the last word spoken before Moses implored? It's God's word. God says, I will not go among you. And then right here in 12, the next word spoken in quotation is Moses saying, please go with us. See the people mourn because of the consequences of sin. And then you see Moses imploring of God. No, may it not be so. Go up with us. What are we to make of this trip? Is he unhappy with the will of God here? Is he throwing his own temper tantrum here? No, I think it is best to see this as God actually teaching Moses to care about what God cares about. That's what's going on here. God is teaching Moses to care about what God cares about, to really live according to who God is. That's what's going on here. I spoke a little bit about this last week, but there was a time when Moses was not living according to who God was, and therefore was living by sight and not by faith in God. Moses knows that God is all sovereign, but when God calls him to deliver his people out of Egypt, Exodus 13, he says, no, I am not a man of great stature. I'm not a man of great ability. 
I'm not a man of great speech. And so he therefore delays almost the exodus because apparently it's all about him and not the sovereign God. But that was there. In Exodus 33 and 34, here by God's grace, Moses stands as a different man who had indeed witnessed the mighty acts of God. He's a man who, who knows that God had sustained him and the Israelites through the desert. He was a man who, who knew that God had chosen him and asked him to draw near to meet with God at Mount Sinai. He's a man who knows God's will in the Ten Commandments in the Book of the Covenant. He's a man who hasn't even met with God. And so when God's wrath was going to burn hot against the Israelites because of their adultery, Moses, instead of delaying God's deliverance plan, pleaded that God would deliver the people and not destroy them. There are four prayers in 32 to 34. Four prayers. That's prayer number one. Remember on what basis he feeds God, God's deliverance? Right before he had, he had obstructed God's deliverance plan uh, for the people on the basis that he was ill-equipped. But here in his first prayer, chapter 32, verses 11 14, what does he base his prayers on? He bases all of his God is. So you see Moses kind of fading from the picture, and so he prays in a scene that God would do what God alone can do. He pleads there in verse 11, uh, because you had chosen, because you have chosen Israel, deliver them, delay your judgment of them, save them. And then in verse, uh, verse 12 of chapter 32, because of the fame of your great name is at stake, he says, delay your judgment of them, deliver them. And then in verse 13, he says, because of your eternal promises that you have given to Abraham, to Isaac, to Jacob, and to all of Israel, spare them. First prayer. In the second prayer, right, you see this here, God is teaching Moses to love what he loves. In the second prayer, 32, 30 to 34, Moses there, he shows that he learns to identify with sinful Israel, throwing his lot in with them. In 31, he says, forgive their sins, and if not... Do to me what you will do to them, because I represent them. I imagine here God the Father is delighting in his chosen leader for Israel. Because he understands that number one, salvation is of the Lord. And number two, whoever leads God's people must have his people on his very own heart. See how this points to Jesus here? Moses is a mediator for Israel. Jesus is a mediator for all of his people. Jesus himself is salvation is of the Lord in body and he certainly has us on his heart as he intercedes for the people Moses here is learning to love what God loves and then in Moses' third prayer we have verses 12 to 16 of this chapter here 33 Moses pleads with God that God would go with them where the people were ready for any old stand-in for God while they were ready to try and go ahead into the land with a statue of a cow leading the way here, Moses is praying, no, just give me you. The people say, we're happy with anything. Moses says, give me you, God. Look at verse 12 again, 33, verse 12. Moses said to the Lord, see, you say to me, bring up this people, but you have not let me know whom you will send with me. God had promised that an angel would go, kind of nondescript, an angel will go. Then you have said, I know you by name, and you have also found favor in my sight. 
And look at verse 13. Now, therefore, if I have found favor in your sight, please show me now your ways that I may know you in order to find favor in your sight. Consider, too, this, that this nation is your people. Then he says, show me your ways in order that I may know you. The other people mourn because God's going to give, take away his presence. But then you have Moses here saying, show me your ways. Show me who you are in order that I may know you. This is the third prayer. Moses asks to behold God in all of his glory, the fullness of his being, in effort to know him. You see that holy pleading of God? God says to sinful Israel, I withdraw. Moses says, don't withdraw. Give me you in all of your fullness that I may know you. And he's teaching there. God is teaching him to be a leader of his people. So God answers there in 14. He answers them. Being happy with them. Like, yes, this is my mediator, the man whom I, have, I am teaching, the man whom I have chosen. Because I will give it to you. Verse 14. My presence will go with you. And I indeed will give you rest. And then you know when people say things. You ever do this? When you say things that reveal what's really in your heart. This is what Moses does next. He says there... If your presence will not go with me, do not bring me up from here. It's kind of like an affirmation of what everything that's important, right? You see the contrast between Israel and then Moses. Israel says, let's go into the land. We'll take anything, anybody to lead us. Doesn't matter. Doesn't have to be a real cow. Moses then says, the land makes no difference to me unless, unless God goes up with me. The land makes no difference if you are not with me. God's grace, Moses, understands what God is after. God is after relationship with his people. He's after establishing a holy nation under his name to the fame of his own great name, which is why in verse 16, look there, he says, Is it not in your going with us so that we are distinct, I and your people, from every other people on the face of the earth? If you're visiting with us and you know yourself not to be a follower of Jesus, it's important to know that what Moses is after is what Christianity is about. Christianity is not about following rules because we have some sort of internal moral compass that we therefore want to be good and pursue this thing called Christianity. Christianity is not about following some dude because eh, that's maybe just what we do in America. Certainly not. Christianity is about knowing the very living God who has made you. And it's having a restored relationship with that Lord. In Christ, friends, God discloses himself in his Son. You see presence? Remember presence? You had presence in the Garden of Eden with Adam and Eve. You have presence here at, uh, at Mount Sinai, God pledging himself here. You also have presence when you come to Jesus. The climax of God's presence of God dwelling with us. And you remember what that means to the people of faith? It means comfort. It means strength. It means confidence. It means God bringing in His righteous rule, saving His people from their sins. It means God bringing in all of His kingly rule to make sure and ensure that Christians are made to be a people holy unto His name. And we can have a relationship with this thing. That's why it makes such a big deal that God is actually, God the Son is actually with us in the New Testament. That's why His name is Emmanuel. That is God with us. And so we celebrate these things. Why the past, why Oscar read John chapter 14 is because we know that Jesus Christ is with us. And He was with us 2,000 years ago. And then He is with us as He gives us His Spirit. 
so the very Spirit of Jesus Christ dwells among His people. In Jesus, God the Son dwells with His people, tabernacling, so to speak, with them, walking among them, reestablishing relationships with sinners. You see, in Christ, God is reaching out to sinners, calling them back to relationship with Him, despite their sins. Back here in Exodus, Moses desires to see God's glory. So in verse 18, he says, Please show me your glory. This is Moses' pursuit of God, right? He's pursuing God. They mourn, and so they pursue. Show me your ways, your nature, your glory, that I might know you. Friends, thinking back to mourning in the face of sin, and then also pursuing the presence and desire and trying to examine our hearts in light of what it is that we do desire. Let me ask you a question. When you sin, what do you mourn more, most for? When you guys sin, do wrong, what do you mourn most for? I ask this because uh, whatever makes you mourn most is an indicator of what you want most. What you mourn most for is an indicator of what you want most. So when you sin, if what you mourn most is your own lack of perfection, then perfection is your God. That's what you want. And your promised land, so to speak, is self-righteousness, perfection. You want to boast in yourself. If what you mourn most for is a disrupted relationship with your loved one, then harmonious relationships are your God. And your own promised land is perhaps being well thought of by those that matter most. You bow down to public opinion. If in your sin what you mourn most for is your own convenience, so, you know, you might say, oh man, I sinned again and now i got to reconcile with my wife or now i got to make right with all these people and that just takes so much time because i got so many other things to do. I mean, what's your God there? The God that you bow down to is convenience and comfort. Your promised land is the good life, however it is that you define that. So, friends, let us learn from Moses here. Moses representing all of the people, mourns the absence of the presence of God. And therefore, he pursues the presence of God. Now, to be clear, God does not withdraw his presence today as he did then. He does not withdraw his presence today as he was uh, stating that he would do to Israel. I mean, today, if we live in unrepentant sin, for the Christian to live in unrepentant sin, his presence may not be felt. And so we might feel the lack of fellowship with God. Today for the church, we always have Christ's Spirit dwelling in us, and so we always have His Spirit for the true Christian who repents and believes. I mean, back then, God was doing something absolutely unique in salvation history. He was forming His people for the very first time, and then, uh, you know, there's only one exodus, there's only one golden calf exodus, or sorry, golden calf incident, and so He's teaching His people to long for His presence. That's a, that's a once-in-a-lifetime, once-in-a-salvation, uh, history of salvation experience there. But what we today as a New Testament church learn here is that to properly mourn over sin and then pursue God, we need to understand that our sin is primarily against God. It's something that uh, the marriage group has been studying in our small group here. Uh, David says this in, in the Psalms. <clears throat> After he commits adultery, he confesses, Against you only, God, have I sinned. I mean, of course he sinned against uh the person he committed adultery with, of course he sinned against 
uh, that woman's husband, as it says there in the book, in the history books of the Bible. He certainly had sinned against those people, but primarily he sinned against God. And what Moses says when he says, show me your glory, he's asking, I have sinned against you, or we as Israel have sinned against you. Now please make it right because my sin is against you. He sees, he sees the sin against God, and so he prays, prays, show me your glory. Show me then your superior glories than what sin offers. Show me your superior ways so that I might evaluate the lesser ways of the world. So friends, if you want to grow in, your, in, in an awareness of how your sin is first and foremost against God, let me encourage you to do two things. First, or three things. First, consider how your sin is against God. Consider how your sin is against God. How your sin is against God's being. God's ways. God's decrees. God's plan. Take anger and hatred that gives birth to murderous thoughts, for example. Why is anger and hatred such a sin? Is it because, oh man, I fly off the handle, I lose control. No. If, if that's what you're mourning most for, then perhaps you're mourning most your own your lack of perfection. Uh, you sin against God because God has designed you, friend, to reveal His glory to the world, His patience, His love, His compassion. As given that you are a Christian, you know God's forgiveness, you are to show that forgiveness to others, and so you offend God because God is not like that. You sin against His ways because He intends that we show others the forgiveness of sins, for example. And that, once again, we, in our own sin of anger, of hatred, of murder, we show that we, we display wrongly that this is what Christians are like, this is what your Christ, the Christian God is like. That's the first thing. Consider how your sins are against God, His being, His ways, His decrees, His plans. Second thing, given those categories, consider then how you have sinned against the other person. Consider then how you have sinned against the other person. I mean, if God has designed you, the Christian, to live in His glory, then you are made to display His image. They are made to uh, worship Him to give Him glory, but then in your murderous thoughts against them, you actually want to wipe them off the face of the planet. So you're saying, okay, God, I recognize, I recognize you give me these commands. I recognize you want me to love them in a way where they are to worship you, but I erase them off the face of the planet. I don't care what you say. And instead you rewrite the law according to you as king. So given the categories, Consider how you have sinned against the other person. And then once you feel the weight of that sin, what an imperfect person you are, a sinful person you are, don't stop there. God draws us, He calls us to pursue Him once again. We're going to see this more and more as we go on through this passage. This passage here is an invitation to get on your knees once again after you have mourned in desiring to seek the presence of the Lord God calls us to get on our knees once again, to ask God to reveal us again the glories of God, the superior glories of God, over and against my own sin, my own anger, my own jealousy, my own lust after the things of the world, and in fact to confess it. That's the passionate pursuit of Moses here. Show me your glory. If he wants to dive into the knowledge of God, 
So if you want to find God after sin, mourn your own sin and sin's effects. Pursue the presence and glory of God. And then number three, behold. Behold your God. Number three, behold your God. This is point number three. God answers Moses' prayer and lets him behold his glory. But first he prepares him. I'm just going to go through this story relatively quickly. Uh, first, in, in verses 19 to 23, God says, Look, you cannot behold my glory in all of its fullness. I'm going to put you in a cleft of a rock. Look there in 22 and 23. While, uh, 22 and 23, while my glory passes by, I will put you in a cleft of a rock and I will cover you with my hand until I have passed by. Then I will take away my hand and you shall see my back, but my face shall not be seen. Second thing, God calls Moses to, to take tablets of stone and go up the mountain. Uh, the tablets were broken by Moses. He threw them down because the people had already broke the covenant. And so Moses, in his, in his righteous anger, is throwing them down as a reflection, saying, you have already broken the, co- the covenant, the Ten Commandments. Uh, and so now God is saying, get new ones, uh, tablets of stone, go up the mountain, so I'll write them again. So this is, this is big symbolism here. Like a marriage covenant. I mean, think about marriage certificates. Remember the old one that you had thrown into the fire because the people break the covenant. God says, bring up another one, and we're going to do this again. Even though the people are sinful, even though they want to walk away again and again and again, God is renewing his very own vows right here. Moses obeys God, he goes up onto the mountain, and there God reveals his glory. Verse 5 of 34. The Lord descended in the cloud and stood with him there and proclaimed the name of the Lord. The Lord passed before him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord. A God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. Just stop like that. This is jarring. This is jarring, at least in my own opinion. The people of Israel had just abandoned God who had delivered them. Instead of continuing the worship of this mighty God that we see in chapter 15, instead of continuing that worship, they instead commit an adulterous idolatry and make for themselves a golden calf. I mean, if your loved one cheated on you, think about that a little bit. If your loved one cheated on you, what are you going to want to affirm to them? Would you not want to affirm to them their meanness, their sinfulness, how hurt you are, their inability to do right, their ability to do wrong? Does anybody find this jarring here, but God is reaffirming his sinful people? If you have ever been betrayed, I mean, don't you find this tenderness, this patience, this grace almost wrongly placed, almost a waste of compassion? So friends, in this uh, affirmation of God, we learn so much about God and his eternal posture towards sinners. His people commit adultery, and what is he busy reaffirming to those who seek him? I mean, this is huge. This has huge significance for all of us, all of God's people who find our very own selves betraying a holy and righteous God. What does God want you to know about Him in your sin? It's a 
is what he affirms to you, friend. After stating his name, the Lord, the Lord, the God who is with us, the God who is over all, he says, I want you to know that I am merciful and gracious. <laughs> that, 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 that should bother you a little bit, given we are sinners. He says he is compassionate and gracious. In other words, he genuinely cares about his created people, their weaknesses. He tells them, and then on top of that, I freely give you what you don't deserve. Gracious. He, he goes on, he says, I'm slow to anger. You might think I'm angry. I'm slow to anger. There's a Hebrew metaphor here that describes him being long in the nostrils or long in the nose. You can imagine the cartoons that people get mad, their faces get red, and then, you know, this is the beginning of madness, and then if they're really mad, then their whole entire face gets red. Well, just imagine the redness going all the way down to the nose. He says he's like Pinocchio. The redness takes a long time to get down to that end. I am long in the nose, slow to anger. And then he goes on and says, I am abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. You broke the covenant, but I always keep the covenant. Steadfast love is his covenant-keeping love. The love that a faithful, faithful, perfect husband has towards his adulterous bride. The husband is steadfast in keeping his covenant. He is faithful in everything he says. In other words, the vows that he makes, he always fulfills. And it's not just that he is steadfast in love and steadfast in faithfulness. It says that he abounds in steadfast love and faithfulness. Abounds. And what do you think of when you think of the word abound? He is abounding. Uh, this one person, um, former mentor over at Biola, where I used to teach there, uh, Eric Thomas, he uses this description in terms of abounding. He thinks about all the, the, the various flowers that are out in the world, like daisies, right? He says, you know, how many billions and billions of daisies are there in the world, right? That's abounding. And then you add that to steadfast love, his, his desire that you be delighting in him and his grace. He just says God is like the, 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 the masterful uh, green thumb man who just puts out billions and billions of daisies on, on the planet just so, just so you guys can delight in his, uh, <laughs> you know, look at all these red ones, the yellow ones, the purple ones. Just for your own pleasure in God, the covenant-keeping God. I, you know what I think about when I think of abounding? I recently watched a YouTube video where uh, these guys do this experiment and they fill this pool, right? A big pool, 30,000 gallons, one that with Orbeez. You know, the Orbeez, they absorb water, they turn like little balls and it helps, uh, um, you know, children learn to, to, to do kinesthetic types of things. And they fill the whole entire pool with them. 25 million Orbeez. And then they got like five minutes of, you know, the guys diving into the Orbeez, trying to swim in the Orbeez, and they're not even moving because they're just overwhelmed with these Orbeez, abounding. That's the picture that I get that God gives towards sinners. He invites us into the pool of Orbeez, so to speak, as, as ridiculous as that thing is, the illustration is. And he invites us to swim in his grace. You never even get to the end. You never get down to the bottom. Because your life in God is thick with his own steadfast love, his covenant-keeping love. What good news for sinners, friends, who see their need for salvation in him. He keeps steadfast love to thousands of generations who walk after him. Look there, the verse. Forgiving iniquity, transgression, and sin. But he says at the same time, with a stern warning, do not presume upon my grace and mercy. The Israelites did this. They would just be falling into sin all over again, desiring after God's blessings while rejecting God himself. 
He says there, but I will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity on the fathers of the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. What he means there is that is to those who persist of not repenting of their sins. If generations are going to walk after the generations that have gone before, if they reject me, then I will not forgive their sins. Friends, if you feel stuck at mourning, or perhaps you, you, you fear in your own insecurities, maybe primarily mourning other things other than your sin against God, look who comes along your side and walks with you. He says, show me your glory, and God just proclaims his name. The Lord, the Lord. And then Moses has the opportunity to behold his God. Like a child wrestling with fear, with confusion, with sin, knowing that he wants the wrong things and he struggles to want the right things. This covenant-keeping God draws near and offers new grace, new mercy, even his very own faithfulness, his steadfast love, in order to forgive you and save you from your sin. And so in awe of God's grace, in awe of his merciful reign, Moses worshipped. Moses bowed his head to the ground and he worshipped. He worshipped God. He worshipped God who loves and secures him in a restored relationship with him. He worships being a recipient of the steadfast love of God. If you're, once again, if you're visiting with us and know yourself not to be a follower of Jesus, this is why Christians worship God. Because we are, we are recipients of God's covenant-keeping love in Jesus Christ. As God sent His Son to live the life we could not live because He knew we were sinners. He was mindful of our wayward hearts and so in compassion. For God so loved the world, He gives of Himself to dwell amongst us and calls us, beckons us to turn from our sin and believe on Him. Jesus, once again, friend, is the climax of God's love and faithfulness towards sinners. In His mercy, God places the punishment we deserve on His Son. In His grace, God grants us salvation in Him, restored relationship, right standing with God, forgiveness, and an inheritance. As He dies the death we should have, bearing the wrath that we rightly deserve, so that we would experience God's steadfast love. So when we gather together as a church every single Sunday, every single Lord's Day, this is what we celebrate, this is what we preach, this is what we sing to one another, and in fact, this is what we pray. And this is what Moses does there in verse 9 here. The emphasis here is on Moses' prayer. And he said, if now I have found favor in your sight, this is verse, uh, chapter 34, if now I have found favor in your sight, O Lord, please let the Lord go in the midst of us, for it is a stiff-necked people. And pardon our iniquity and our sin, and take us for your inheritance. What does he pray then? What does he pray that we ought to pray and can pray? First, he prays, please let the Lord go in the midst of us, for it is, in fact, a stiff-necked people, like an untrained animal. This is something that God had promised he would do. I am going to be in the midst of you. So Moses comes boldly before Jesus, before God, saying, come, go in the midst of us. Fulfill your promises. The reason why you can pray boldly that the Lord would go before is because God had promised that he would. Second thing he promised, he prays, pardon our iniquity and our sin. If you notice, when God reveals his name, this is exactly what he does in steadfast love. Forgives iniquity and transgression and sin. Once again, the reason why Moses prays so boldly after the people 
that he represents has sinned against him is because this is what the Lord does for us. He forgives transgression, iniquity, and sin. Third thing, he says, take us for your inheritance. Is this not what God's intention was all along to Abraham, to Isaac, to Jacob, to all of Israel, to take for himself a treasured possession, the kingdom of priests and a holy nation? Here we see Moses praying to God, asking that God would act according to his own character. This is part of Moses' worship of God. It is not, by the way, when he says uh, this prayer, he, he is not saying, would you please be who you said you are? Because I'm not really sure if you will or not. No, he goes before God with, once again, great boldness and surety, knowing that God is this God. Be who you are, God, because that is who you are. Do for us what you have promised to do for us, because that is what you do. Moses here sets an example, friends, for all those who would follow this God in this faith, glorifying God by wholly leaning upon Him, asking God to be for us what we cannot be for ourselves, asking God to do for us what we cannot do for ourselves, in fact, it is an asking of God to be and do what only the Lord can do. Be merciful to me, a sinner. Non-Christian, let me encourage you to take advantage of this God. Be opportunistic upon this God, because that is what this God wants you to do. To draw near to Him, praying and claiming everything that God has promised to give to sinners who repent and believe forgiveness of sin and a right relationship with this God. I mean, you feel, you should feel that. You should feel the sin and then God drawing up alongside of them saying, come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest because I am a steadfast God who keeps you covenant. And repent of your sin and believe and know the goodness of this God who forgives sins and keeps his covenant to thousands of generations who walk after him. How do we find life after sin? We mourn, we pursue, we behold, also worship. We also are to be reconciled. We also are to be reconciled. This is point number four. This is the last point. Here God renews his covenant with his people. You see there God, uh, you see Moses' prayer in 34, 9. If I have found favor in your sight, O Lord, please let the Lord go in the midst of us, for we are stiff-necked people, and pardon our iniquity and our sin, and take us for your inheritance. He's praying, imagine that, he's praying on top of the mountain, and, and you almost see that God is like, do I even need to answer the prayer? Because this is who I am. He looked there in verse 10, and he said, Behold, I am making a covenant. Do you not know what I am doing? The covenant that I am keeping. The covenant that I gave to Abraham, to Isaac, to Jacob, to all of the Israelites. I am making my covenant. And you, friends, are my covenant people. Look at verse 10. And he said, Behold, I am making a covenant before all your people. I will do marvels such as have not been created in all the earth or in any other nation. And all the people among whom you are shall see the work of the Lord. For it is an awesome thing that I will do with you. Here, God is fulfilling all of his intentions and purposes with this little nation of Israel, where God was going to use Israel to display his glory and character to the world, so he resumes fulfilling his promises. 
where God promised to bring them into their own land. So he resumes the mission. I'm going to bring you into your own land where God had promised, where God had already given his people the law to teach them how to live. So then he goes on in the rest of the chapter to emphasize what the people need to know again. So he reiterates the good law for his kingdom. And we hope that, that they would hear it with a different ear given their recent idolatry and given their rejection of Moses. In terms of idolatry, God renews this covenant. I am making a covenant with you. But then he warns them against this idolatry in verses 12 to 16. And then God even helps them listen to Moses before they rejected this Moses. But look there in 29 to 30. When Moses came down from Mount Sinai, this is after he had received the law with the Ten Commandments there, with the two tablets of the testimony in his hand, as he came down from the mountain, Moses did not know that the skin of his face shone because he had been talking with God. Aaron and all the people of Israel saw Moses, and behold, the skin of his face shone, and they were afraid to come near him. Even that is an act of God's kindness. Before they rejected Moses, here God strikes the fear of the Lord and the people that, uh, so that they would obey him. We're going to look a whole lot about worship in relation to obedience next week. But you look there, verse 27. And the Lord said to Moses, write these words, for in accordance with these words, I have made a covenant with you and Israel. It's amazing here that the Lord is so determined to keep his covenant. They break the covenant, but yet he says, bring up another one. Let's do this again. In Jesus Christ, the new covenant is established in his blood, where once and for all he removes our transgressions from us. He says to all the people who repent and believe, that I will never remove my presence from you. Instead, I will hold you fast until the very end. Now, let's conclude here. It is interesting to ask, what exactly changed from before Israel's idolatry to after, right? Before the calf to after. I mean, did God's promises actually change? Was God still going to bring them into the promised land? Yes, he was. He had promised to do so. Was God still going to do with them what he promised? Make them into a nation? Yes, he was. He promised to do so. So he's keeping that, that promise. So the question is, did God even, in all of this, did God change his promises? The answer is no. What changed was that uh, he, in fact, if he was going to save the people, the people needed to understand their sinful condition. And that's exactly what Moses represents. Save us on account of your own steadfast love and mercy. Be to us who you are. Do to us what you alone have said. And deliver us once and for all. Mourn, pursue, behold, and be reconciled your God family. Let's pray for God. Our Father in heaven, Lord, we thank you that you are a kind God and a gracious God, a God full of steadfast love and mercy, true to everything you say, faithful to all of your promises. Lord, we thank you that in Jesus Christ, you promised all who repent and believe that you would wipe away our sins forever and you would adopt us into your family like a good father is to your children. 
so, Lord, you promise to be to those who believe and trust in you. Lord, we thank you that in you there, in fact, is reconciliation. There is a new, restored relationship, regardless of what we have done. We thank you, Lord, that you are mindful of sinful man. So much so that you come and walk amongst us. You take upon us the likeness of sinful flesh. And so you die on the cross. God the Son dies on the cross for our sins, gets up three days later, and tells the world that payment is paid. Our death has been fulfilled. And so we can be new, have a new relationship with you. Lord, we pray that we would take advantage of your grace and mercy because that is part of what it means to worship you. Help us acknowledge you for who you are and give you praise for what you have done. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.